Let's open up to Hebrews chapter 8. As we work our way through the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, thank you for uh, sitting through an hour and five minutes on Sunday. Second service was an hour and four, so saved a little bit of time there for you, second service, you're like, a minute. And I want to make this uh, point right now, because if you look around the room right now, what we're dealing with is what I told Micah, is it's called Hebrews fatigue. What do I mean by that? By the time you get into the middle of Hebrews, you're kind of fatigued. Why? Because it's not talking to us per se. It's talking to a group of people who are Jewish with a lot of Jewishness, a lot of Old Testament, and we can get fatigued through this section. So what I want to do is Get us, in the, get us back into the right place. And what we'll do is we'll read verse 1 of 8, and then we will go backwards to chapter 1, and we'll start over. <laughs> Half of you just left. Hebrews 8, verse 1. Now this is the main point. Took him eight chapters to get to that. Does everybody hear that? Took the writer eight chapters to get to the main point of the things that we are saying that we have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for your word. Lord, we know that will not return void. And we thank you for those serving. We ask that you bless children's ministry and youth ministry. And Lord, that we would draw close to you tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Chapter 1, verse 1. God, at various times and in various ways spoken times past to the fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, spoke to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the worlds, who being in the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he by himself purged our sin, here it is, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Do you see that? That's what we just read in chapter 8. Now go back to chapter 8. So that's what was on the writer's mind starting out the book. And then he gets derailed in a biblical, godly, good way. But think about that. Here's his thought. That Jesus came and sat at the, mat, at the right hand of the majesty on high. And now he finally gets back to that thought. I don't think I've ever gone off for eight chapters on a rabbit trail. But he needed to do this because the Hebrews were in danger of so many things. Of walking away. And he has built this for the last eight chapters that Jesus is what? Starts with a B better. And that is the theme. Jesus is better. He's better as we will see because he is the better high priest. Verse 1, this is the main point <laughs> and the things that we are saying. For we have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. And so now uh, the writer is going to describe Christ's ministry here. 
that it is superior to Aaron's uh, line, his priesthood, because he officiates in a better sanctuary. He's going to start talking about the temple, and he's going to say that Christ's temple in heaven is better than the one on earth because it is a shadow and a type of what is to come that God, as we will see, gave that to Moses as a type and as a foreshadowing. Not only that is that he is, has a better covenant as well. We're going to see a better tabernacle and a better covenant. And so finally, again, the writer comes to his main part of his argument. And he is, for the last eight chapters, building to this place. Notice that he says that we have such a high priest. Again, going back to chapter 1. This is a note, and it's not a dig at the Jews. But the Jews have been saying, we have a tabernacle, we have a priesthood, we have offerings and ceremonies, we have a temple, we have beautiful priestly garments. And the answer is, yeah, 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 yeah. But, the writer says, we have something greater. And what is the greater? It is Jesus. He says, but we have this high priest. You see, they have been saying, we have all of this, but what do you guys have? <laughs> and kind of like, I don't know, what do we have? And now the writer is going to say, well, really, we only have Jesus. And by the way, is that enough? That's enough. Jesus is enough. That's all we need. We don't need a temple. We don't need priestly robes. We don't need ceremonies. Listen, this is going to become important over the next couple of weeks through the seven letters to the seven churches because the church fell into the very same trap that the Jews fell in in the Old Testament by setting up this priestly line, this system of order, this system of tradition, this system of sacraments and rites and rituals, tradition, and they lost who the main thing was, the main point. And what is the main point? It is not religion. It is a relationship with Jesus Christ. Look, the writer says, you have ceremonies, but we have Christ. You have the picture, but we have the person. And our high priest is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high. What you need to understand, and they would have understood this, there were no chairs in the temple in the temple proper. There was no room for them to sit down. There was no time for them to sit down because there was always sacrifices to go on because, are you ready for it, they were dealing with human beings who are sinful. But now there is this image of Jesus who is seated at the right hand. So it tells us that the work is finished, to tell us die, it is done on the, up upon the cross, Jesus said. Again, no other high priest ever sat down and finished the work because the work was never finished because he was dealing with mankind. Again, the tabernacle and the temple of the old covenant had beautiful furnishings, but no place for the priest to sit down because the work was never finished. And yet Jesus says, it is finished. Notice he says in verse 2, he says, A minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected 
and not men. Speaking of the heavenlies, for every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifice. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also has something to offer. For if he was on earth, he would not be a priest. I love how the writer says that. Why? Now listen, this is chapter 8 by this time. You should be able to get this hands down. Why, if Jesus was on earth, could he not be a priest? He was from the wrong tribe. He's from the wrong tribe. And they made that point. You could hear their argument, but he's from the tribe of Judah. He's not from the Levitical line. He can't serve. The writer says, yeah, (laughs) for if he was on earth, he would not be a priest. Since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law. Notice this in verse 5, who serve the copy and the shadow of the heavenly things. Now, that's huge. What the writer is saying is that in the heavenlies, what eventually we will see that God gave Moses, he gave a pattern of a copy. So they are worshiping a copy. Ladies, um, do you in the morning go up to the photo of your husband and... (laughs) Talk to it, and if you do, you might want to come talk to us after, and you know, give the your husband's photo a kiss. That's a copy, right? But you don't do that. The writer is saying you guys are worshiping a copy. Who you should be worshiping is Jesus, but you want to go back to the copy, so it doesn't make any sense. The writer is trying to get them to understand. Why are you wanting always to go back, notice, to the copy or the shadow? As Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain. Now listen, these first century Jews took tremendous pride in their temple. And and look, for a good reason. It was spectacular. It was huge. It was an architectural marvel at this time. However glorious the Jerusalem temple was, it was of man and mostly built by a corrupt, ungodly man, Herod. Think about that. It was mostly built by Herod. And it was nothing to compare to the glory of the heavenly temple that Jesus served in. Every once in a while, the writer keeps hitting them, and I'm I'm with like kind of a a love tap, right? Like, do you get that? You think it's all about the devil? Remember when even the apostles got wrapped up into that in Matthew 24? Lord, look at how great the temple is. It's huge. It's wonderful. They could not reconcile in their mind that that temple would ever go away, but what did Jesus say? He said, not one stone will be left upon another. And they couldn't grasp that. It's like us looking at the Washington Capitol or the White House, although that did burn (laughs) at one point. But you look at something great like that and you say, hey, that'll never go away. And they were putting stock into a building. Do you hear that? They were putting their stock into a building and not into a relationship. And the writer keeps bringing it back to them. Hey, this is a shadow. This is a type. 
God never meant for us to worship a building, to worship a person. He says, but now he, Jesus, has obtained a more excellent ministry than who? Than the Aaronic priesthood. Inasmuch as he is also a mediator of a better covenant, which he established on better promises. Again, we are Gentiles. It is very hard for us to grasp this, what it means to lay aside the old covenant and the Old Testament and everything that we know. It's very difficult for us to get what he is saying to them. But what he is saying that he is a better priest because there is a better covenant that was established on better promises. His death upon the cross issued in this new covenant. Jesus said, behold, I make a new covenant with you, right? That as communion demonstrates for us something that we remember for we will remember for all eternity. Jesus will have the marks in his hands. We will forever see what his love was for mankind. That is a better covenant now. And he's going to tell us that we can go beyond the veil, that we can come into the temple, and now we can have this relationship with God that no Jew ever had. Why would you go back to that? Why would you have, why would you, trade being a son of the most high God (laughs) why would you trade that in why would you trade in your access to God to go back to a shadow to go back to a type and a picture the writer continues to make this point it makes no sense notice for if the first covenant had been faultless verse 7 then no place would ever been sought for a second. It's kind of like Jesus is telling us, listen, if the old system was good, why did I have to come and die? Because it kind of hurt, right? To have your own creation spit on you, mock you, humiliate you. Jesus is like, why did I go through all of that? If the first one was able to save, does everybody get that? And again, he's talking to the Jews who are wanting to go back to a system that will never save them and could never save them. And I want you to hear this because, again, there is a wave of believers today who want to go back to the old. They go back to the dietary laws, the feast days, and they are mixing the old with the new, and you cannot do that. Jesus says you can't put new wine in old wineskins. You can't take the law and grace and put them together. It doesn't work. So, if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would ever been sought for the second. Listen, finding fault with them. Who are the them? It's the Jewish people, Judah and Israel. Finding fault with them, behold, the days are coming. This is from Jeremiah, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers. Who are their fathers? Father Abraham, you know the song, who had many sons. Jacob, Isaac, right? All of their fathers, Levi, all of the 12 tribes, 
Listen to this. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day in which I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. Because they did not continue in my covenant, so I disregarded them, says the Lord. This is from the prophet Jeremiah. This is at the end when they're going into captivity. And God is saying, listen, you're going into captivity, but listen, there is a new covenant that is coming. And guys, 400 years later, he showed up. The Son of God shows up. Mm. 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law into their mind and write them upon their heart. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And none of them shall teach his neighbor and none of them his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. So verse 10 and verse 11, you might think is the time of Jesus, but it is not. It is, it is during the time that we will see in Revelation down the, the way in Revelation, the thousand-year reign. Because for the most part, the Jewish people rejected Jesus during the time of Jesus. For the most part, not all Jews, but the vast majority of them. So therefore, that doesn't apply to them till later on when Jesus establishes his throne. And again, we will get to this in the book of Revelation. How exciting that will be to see the Jewish people. Listen to this. Listen, as believers, you need to know this because I have a real problem with Christians over the last 2,000 years dealing with the Jewish people. We have no business dealing how we have dealt with them in the past. They are God's holy people. We are from them. We know that they will, for the most part, not heed, but that never gave us any right to put them in an inquisition, let alone let uh, uh, train cars go by in Germany. The church is guilty of a lot of sins against our brethren, the Jews. We will rule and reign with Jesus, and the Jewish nation will be there, and they will see their Messiah, whom they pierced. <laughs> and they will say, where did you get those barks? And he said, in the hands of my brethren, in the house of my friends. And they will know. How exciting it will be for them in verse 11. When each Jew will uh, teach, they won't need anybody to teach their neighbor. And none of his brother will say, know the Lord, for they shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. Finally, the apple of God's eye, Abraham's seed, finally will recognize their true Messiah. And that they, they put him to death 2,000 years before. He says, listen. I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and to their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Huge, isn't it? This is the nation of Israel. And that he says a new covenant. He has made the first obsolete. 
Now what is becoming obsolete is growing old and is to vanish away. Do you hear the language? Again, we are Gentiles. We're not really getting it. But put yourself in this position of a Jew who who heard he has made the first obsolete because now there is this new covenant. The fact that God introduces a new covenant means that the first covenant is obsolete. And since this is so, there should be no thought of going back to the law, again the writer says. Yet that's exactly what some of these professing believers were tempted to do. And so the author warns them once again that the legal covenant is outdated. A better covenant has been introduced, (laughs) and they should stay with Jesus. Now, before you think, wow, that was the shortest message he ever gave. (laughs) Chapter 9. We won't do the whole thing. Maybe. Chapter 9, verse 1. Now he describes the temple again. Because why? Gentiles have no idea what the temple is like. What is in the temple? What was it for? They didn't have any idea. And so he says, then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and an earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand and the table of showbread, which was called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle was called the holiest of all, which had a golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid all on its sides with gold, in which there was a golden pot that had manna from the wilderness, and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. And above it were cherub of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things, we cannot speak in detail. And the idea is we we wouldn't go into, into length of it because they know about it. So why go into detail about it? But he's just giving us a brief overview. He says, now when these things had been thus prepared, the priest always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. So that was regular. They would go into the first part. But into the second part, the high priest went alone only once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself for the people's sin committed in ignorance. Now listen to that. The high priest took blood because he had to atone for his own sin. Yes? And then the sin of the nation. Do you hear what the writer is saying? You want to go back to a system where you had man involved and man's sin that had to offer a sacrifice. Why not stay with Jesus who was once and for all the high priest and died for us once? Your guys have to go in not only all the time in the first part, but once a year to make atonement for not only their own sin but the sin of the rest of the people. He says, the Holy Spirit, verse 8, indicating this, and that the way into the holiest of all has not yet made manifest 
why the first tabernacle was still standing. That means, listen, this access that is to come for all of us was not necessarily revealed to them. Notice it was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to conscience. I love this over and over. Maybe it's just me, but I love that he keeps bringing back the Old Testament. The law cannot make anybody perfect. And yet they think that they are. They think that by doing this from the Old Testament, this from the law, will make them right with God. He says in verse 10, concerned only with food and drink, Various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of Reformation. Now, I want to make this point because it does apply to the Jews, how they were worried about food and drink, about various washings. Remember what they told Jesus? They, Why are your guys not washing their hands before their lunch? Remember that? Do you think that those guys did not wash their hands? I guarantee you they did but they did not wash it in the so-called prescribed manner of the Jews. Now, the Old Testament did not say exactly what to do. It just said, hey, wash your hands under running water. It's a pretty good idea. Don't you love how the Bible is filled with sanitation before we even had sanitation? I'm so tired of hearing that the Bible is against science. It's actually filled with science. And filled with common sense. But he says, listen, you guys were concerned about food and drink, various washings, and fleshly ordinances. Now, what I find interesting is that that's exactly what is starting to happen once again in some, uh, some circles of Christianity today. They are focusing on food and drink. Oh, you can't have that. You can't drink that. Seven-day Adventist. There's a whole group of people in the Seven-day Adventist that are focused on food and drink, what you can and cannot have, various washings. Uh, there are, and Sorry, my brain's going a little bit too fast for me. I was thinking, geez, Seven-day Adventist, my wife and I grew up in, in a monk semi Wife's uh, dad was a seven-day Adventist for a while, still is, I think. And she grew up, you know, kind of in that. Uh, but they're, they're all focused on the wrong thing, on food and drink, on washing. What does the writer keep telling us over and over? Who should we be focused on? Should we be focused on sacraments or a box to go and confess? Or should we focus on the one who cleanses us from all of our sin? Do you see? We think, oh, the Old Testament and these Jews and Hebrews, but it's all today as well. As we go through the book of Revelation, you will see that. But I see today there are those who put emphasis on food and drink, various washings, fleshly ordinances, what you can worship, what day you can worship, and how it seems to be something where, well, they're a little bit more holier than you are because they are doing this. And again, don't you want to just tell all of these people to read Hebrews? Why would you go back to that which is done away with? 
that is obsolete. Amen? We're not done. But Christ, you're like, we were so close to being finished. Actually, we will end early tonight, shockingly, because we're just going to read verse 11. But Christ, again, going back to chapter 1, bringing it all back to Christ. Now, this is what you guys used to do in the temple, but Christ came as the high priest of the good things to come. Now, he just said it wasn't revealed to those in the Old Testament of this new covenant that was to come. But when Jesus did come on the scene, how many times was he trying to let the Jewish people know, I'm the guy. I've come to fulfill all of the law and the prophets. He said that to the Jews, not to the Gentiles, to the Jews. Hey, I'm here. I'm the Lamb of God, John John said. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Jews would have known that. I'm the Passover Lamb. Jesus came as the high priest of the good things to come with the greater and the more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. They want to worship that which man made. They want to worship that which man has made for tradition. How many times did Jesus say, you guys are more focused on the traditions of men than the word of God? And again, sorry to be a broken record, through the the Revelation studies, we're going to see that Jesus does not like what was set up in the early church. And even to this day, he cannot stand that. He said, I hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, those who would lord over the people, those who would keep the Bible out of the common laity's hand. How dare anybody ever keep this word out of the people's hands? I have a serious problem. I know what you're thinking. We know, lots of them. (laughs) I have a serious problem with churches not promoting people to bring their Bibles to church. I have a serious problem with that. Don't put the words on the screen. That makes lazy Christians. Put a book in their hand. And I don't mind the iPad. I mean, obviously, I'm teaching from that. But get the Bible in their hand. Promote it. We have Bibles. Do you know how many Bibles we have handed out over the last 20 years, 19 years? A lot. I was going to give you like thousands, but I doubt that. But a lot. It would sound good, but I didn't want to be a phony there. But a lot. I mean, we have these boxes that uh, hold 12 or 24. Now we've, we've learned to get the really big print for the peoples. And we hand out Bibles. We promote that. Hey, if you want a Bible, take that for yourself. Make that be a gift from the Lord. Promote the word of God. Why? He says, because our high priest of the good things to come, which is the greater and the more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, of this creation. Where man promotes man and man promotes tradition, the writer keeps saying to us, but there is a perfect tabernacle that God created in the heavenlies not with man's hands, and not of this creation. And yet you, you still want to go back to man. You still want to go back to tradition. And, 
listen, let's end on this. Why, why do people go back to tradition? It, it, it's safe. It's safe. You know, walking with the Lord and making steps of faith and trusting in him, it's a step of faith. And it's real easy to get into the motion of religion. And you know what? I don't know about going to that ladies' retreat. <sighs> and you don't want to st- I'll just stay in the sanctuary and not go. I don't want to go to a Bible study. I don't want to. Do you see that? And there is a walk with Jesus. And it's not about taking risks. It's just a step of faith. Father Abraham is a great example of that. God told him to get out of his country and amongst his, uh, his kindred. Do you know that God didn't even tell him where he was going? How about that one? Uh, Abe, just leave. Okay. And they just started walking. Now they finally came to Haran, which was part of his family. But even there, he didn't even give them instruction. When Paul and Barnabas first left on the mission field, God didn't tell them where they were going either. They just thought, well, I know a couple of people over on this island. Why don't we go there? Great. They made a step of faith. What the writer is trying to say is, listen, we have a high priest. Let's not focus on what man focuses on. Let's focus on the better and the greater. Because he will go on to tell us that it's not the, not about the, the blood of bulls and goats. It's the, it's the blood of the lamb, and that's what matters. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the writer's heart to reach his Jewish brethren. Lord, we pray for anybody still steeped in religion, man's traditions, man's views, man's laws, rather than you. You are the main thing, and we make so many other things more important than you. Father, that we would have the heart of the writer for the Jewish nation, to love your people. Forgive the, forgive us, Lord, when we, when we do not do what you have asked us to do. And so, Lord, we thank you for the writer. We thank you for Hebrews. We thank you, Lord, of the better, and that is of Jesus. Coming into a new covenant, that of your your body, and your blood that was shed for us. Thank you, Lord, and let us always remember that in Jesus' name. Amen.